Do you like to binge watch TV? Did you know you could binge listen to podcasts? Head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days. You like podcasts about wrestling? They have that. Do you like podcasts about TV and film? They have that. Do you like podcasts about horror? EMC has that too. Do you like comedy? Do you like books? Guess what? They've got you covered. Head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast today. Hi there, this is Beatrice Buckley from Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Amanda Kruger, and you are listening to This is Monster Mash. To another all new episode of Moose's Monster Mash. I'm your host, Moose. And if you listened last month, which I hope you did, you know, this is a continuation of the Bobby Porter story. So without burying the lead, without further ado, let's bring him back in. Mr. Bobby Porter. Hey, Moose. Thanks for the second go around. Oh, my gosh. It's a do over. And thank you, everybody else who uh, listened to the first time, or if you're listening for the first time, thanks for showing up. Appreciate it. And then go back and listen to the other half of his career. <laughs> uh, so how's the last month been treating you? How's everything been going? Everything's good. I uh, got another grandchild on the way in about a month, so I'm packing my, uh, my go bag so I can get down to San Diego in a hurry when I get the call. And uh, summer has finally hit Southern California, so the, Temps are going up. We're not Texas hot, but we're we're getting there. And uh, getting my miles in. And uh, had a good race on the 4th of July. Kicked a lot of old butt. And here we are, back doing what we love to do. The summer hits. What a time to strike, huh? Oh, my gosh, the strike. Um, just in all seriousness, I'm 110% in favor of the choice to do this. It's uh, historic. The industry, even though I've been off a film set for a number of years now, the um, the business model, the technology, the moves that um, have been made recently have been quite detrimental to a number of the cast and crew. And so, unfortunately, for those of us who will be watching a lot of reruns for the next foreseeable future, uh, please understand that what we're doing is for the people who are barely holding on. There's 160,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild. The vast majority of them do not make enough money to even qualify for medical benefits or the pension plan. So when you think of the Screen Actors Guild as a lot of wealthy, selfish, spoiled individuals, um, I'm sorry, you're wrong. There's a handful who are, and they do qualify, but the vast majority of us are out here to try to make a living for ourselves, our family, and to keep um, you entertained. And the strike, unfortunately, is um, necessary at this point. And we and the writers are in solidarity to try to make sure that 
we can continue to do what we love to do so that you can continue to enjoy what it is that we do. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, you know, you know, yes, there is that, uh, you know, fact, like you said, that faction of celebrities who, you know, can, I mean, they, they can make that healthcare minimum in a project. Correct. You know, but there are so many others that are members of the guild that have, you know, aren't the in-demand actors like, you know, Tom Cruise's and, you know, the, the, the big name powerhouses right now that, yeah, that, that, uh, minimum isn't just going to reach out. I mean, you guys have to be working nonstop to hit that minimum. That's correct. It, yep. It's insane. At that point, just yeah. go get a nine to five <laughs> Well, <laughs> and work less. <laughs> well, and a lot of people have, um, I've fortunately been blessed to have stayed steadily employed um, internationally. Um, again, as we talked about in the first go-around, right place, right time, I had a niche to fill. And because of that um, good fortune, uh, I've been able to retire with uh, enough cash to go fishing once in a while and take care of my grandkids once in a while. and. Um, keep the air conditioning running. But the vast majority of the people in my profession who are of my age um, are struggling. And even the younger people who are coming up in the industry, young stunt people that I met as I was about to walk out the door, um, I didn't want to say to them that they were dinosaurs, that they were trying to perfect a craft that was going to be obsolete within the next five years. And I don't think people really fully understand the fear that we have of the new technologies, including IA and motion capture. Uh, once a particular stuntman or an actor has done what he does in front of a motion capture system or an IA system, um, he's basically rendered unnecessary because they can recreate all of his movements, all of his body language, all of his expressions, and put it on anything else they want. And within the next 10 years, you're gonna see a lot of um, animatronic, artificially produced animatronic performances by people that aren't people. And it's terrifying because the people who allowed that to happen are sitting on the side of the road going, but what about me? Anyway, I'm sure you guys didn't come into this particular podcast to hear me vent about the the nature of our craft, but it oh, does. Boy, they're on the wrong show then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that whenever I listen to a podcast, I want to leave it thinking that I know a little bit more about the subject than when I first tuned in. And if anything that we've said over the last few minutes has educated you to understand why this is going on, um, then I've been of some help to you. Absolutely. So and, yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring it up because, like, there's so many, like, misconceptions right now. Like, as soon as they announced that the guild was going on strike, it's like, uh, it's like, no, 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 there's more to it. Just there's a reason. It's not just well, you know, think- a bunch of Hollywood, uh, 
you know, prima donnas saying, oh, no, you know, we're not making enough money. No, there, there's valid reasons here, guys. Just look into it. Yeah. And I think what people have to understand is that the vast majority of the cast, when you go to IMDb and you click on that, watch the full cast list of perhaps, you know, 50 to 100 people, uh, only the top four or five made a really good salary on that particular show. The rest were all minimum wage. And for 50 years, I walked onto a film set regardless of my talent, regardless of my experience, regardless of my um, ability to command my own salary, I always walked onto the set for a scale salary. Never once, well, maybe twice, did I ever get paid more than the basic daily or weekly minimum. Now, stunt people get more money with the amount of risk that they take with every particular stunt that they do. We can go into that some other day, some other time, um, maybe in April. Um, but every major stunt person I ever hired, every legendary stunt person who was the best of the best of the best in the world all came in and worked with me, not for me, but with me, for a scale salary. Even if they'd had 40 years experience and were considered icons in the industry, I could still hire them for the scale base salary. Something to be said about why that's allowed or not. Because no, do no doctor, no attorney, nobody in any other industry with 30 years of experience and a resume to back it ever accept a job for a starting wage. But we do, and I did. My very last job on a film set, I worked for scale because that was just the accepted norm. Okay, so I, I had a great life. Let's talk about good things. Let's talk <laughs> about some fun things. Well, since this is the... Uh... <clears throat> never-ending series of interviews. Let's start <laughs> with uh, you being the stunt double for Noah Hathaway on The NeverEnding Story. Oh. Um, I don't, I'll put a little plug out there. There is a documentary coming out uh, very shortly called The Life After The NeverEnding Story. A young lady puts together um, a great sequence of um, little documentaries. She does this on a dime, literally, or um, whatever the English equivalent of a dime would be. Um, and the I've seen pieces of the documentary. I contributed to that. Um, it's it's going to be quite good. It's going to be a little controversial. There's going to be both pluses and minuses because... Um, that was a major, major motion picture in Germany. And it was Wolfgang Peterson's um, opportunity to become a tremendously successful um, Hollywood producer as well and director. Um, the Neverending Story essentially launched his career internationally. 
Um, the budget was outrageously large for a German production. And I was really privileged and honored to go over and do a few things on two different occasions for Noah. Um, I didn't realize until after I contributed to the documentary that Noah and I had actually worked together before when he was very young. He was maybe 12, maybe 13 when we did um, The Everending Story, but we worked together when he was maybe six, six or seven on a show called Battlestar Galactica because he played the child on the ship that was flying around, the good, the good guy ship, while I was Lucifer, the captain of the bad guy ship. So we, our paths never really crossed on a film set because the way the production was set up on that show was myself and John Colicos, the, the human uh, who, bad guy, the two of us would do all of our dialogue and basically every episode it was, well, where do you think they are now? Oh, I think they're over there. Well, let's try going over there. And that was basically our dialogue for the entire day. So they would shoot all of our scenes on one day. And then all the rest of the episode was shot with all the good guys. And so I never got a chance to see Noah because we never worked on the same day. But then here we are in Germany working on another project. And I went, wait, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun to, to bump into each other again. So, yeah, um, great project. It was probably the last major production that did not employ uh, significant amounts of green screen or motion capture or CGI. Um, it was all done mechanically with like dozens of puppeteers. Oh yeah. So there, there were tons of puppeteers on that movie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, it was a real international crew. We had people from all over the world contributing to that production, not just German, but English, uh, New Zealand's, Australians, Americans, Canadians, people from all over the world came to participate in that. So it was, um, it was uh, something I was rather proud of. And the show shows its age, as do any show like that, that um, the music tends to give it away. Sometimes the music in the show will label it a 70s production or an 80s production. It seems like every movie ever shot in the 1980s has the same drum beat in the background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know what it is, but you can listen to a show from another room in your house and you can hear the sound and you go, oh, made in the 80s. When's so. the last time you watched that in like a uh, uh, movie theater setting with a bunch of people? Oh, gosh. Uh, never. <laughs> okay. Maybe once when it first came out. So here, here's why I asked. Um. A couple years ago, so it'd be, we just did Grand Five, so Grand Comic Fest 4 in 2022. Okay. We had Noah Hathaway come out. Oh, no. And we played Never Ending Story at the theater. Yeah? Oh, at the at the theater that's being restored? Yeah. Awesome. And 
there's this, and this is part of why, you know, this movie holds such, you know, an endearing legacy is you see this room full of adults and even some of their kids. As soon as the never ending story song kicks in, the room just erupts in people singing. It becomes a sing along. Oh my God. And it is one of the most magical things that I have ever witnessed in real life. You know, cause like you watch a movie at home and you know, you're singing along with it and it's like, yeah, childhood. All right. But then when you get a step back and see, you know, this theater full of people do the same thing, you're just like, whoa, you know? So what you're saying is it's the mom and dad and little kid version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, it's a family-friendly <laughs> Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a cult classic in, in the purest sense. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the puppetry and, like, everything that, like, dates it, I think, makes it so endearing. Well, it, it it's, a, it's a warm, fuzzy blanket. Mm-hmm. And I took my granddaughter, the closest I can come up with a, a simpler scenario. Um, I took my granddaughter, who was four, who was absolutely perfect, by the way. Um, Sophia, you know that I said it out loud about you. Yes, you are perfect. <laughs> um, um, she and my son, my amazing firefighter son and his lovely wife, uh, went to go see a theater uh, screening of um, E.T. last year went up for the 40th anniversary. And as we were walking into the theater, my daughter-in-law said to me, this is the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Whoa. And I did the math and I went, okay, so you were about my granddaughter's age? Yeah. And she said, and it scared the living out of me <laughs> and I went and now you're bringing your four year old daughter to repay the favor is that <laughs> where we're going the family tradition that... yeah and I said wow this is this is interesting and we sat in the theater and my four year old granddaughter who's absolutely fearless She's been surfing in Maui for two hours on the surfboard, four years old. Uh, she's, she's just this incredible young lady. And when E.T. was dying and when they were chasing E.T. around, she was terrified, absolutely terrified. And just like clinging to my son and clinging to my daughter-in-law, very much like what happened 40 years earlier? And I looked over and I went, I'm feeling really guilty about this. Should I have said, no, let's just wait a couple of years and let her watch this when she's seven and she can identify the reality a little better. And we came out and everything was fine and she's totally over it. And I went, okay, that was, that was just kind of cool, creepy, fun at the same time because it was difficult to explain to her that it was all make-believe because at that age, you don't want it to be make-believe. You want it to be 
real. Walt Disney had a classic formula for making films, and I think it's been fairly well documented, but before there was VHS tape, before there were cable television networks, before there were reruns on television that were constant, Disney would make films that he knew would stand the test of time and would be re-released every seven years. So if you watched uh, Bambi when you were seven years old, you saw it through the eyes of a seven-year-old. Then seven years later, there's been no reruns. There's, you can't go to Blockbuster and rent the video. You can only wait for them to re-release it in the theaters when you're 14. So now you're 14, you might have a cute little girlfriend sitting next to you and you're watching it through 14-year-old eyes. And then it's going to disappear again. And baby's going to come back out again when you're 21. And now you're just like this hipster 21-year-old. And it's like, okay, you're, you're watching it and maybe you had a couple of beers before you went into the movie, you know. And you see it through. And then when you're 28, you bring your 7-year-old to the movie and you see it as a parent. And that was his formula. He thought that he could make enough films that his library of maybe 50 to 100 films, he wouldn't have to do anything more than that because those movies could be released in sequence every seven years and you'd have an entirely new audience every time they came out. Well, and he continued that really once VHS became, VHS and DVDs became a thing. You know, I was like, we're going to vault them. Yeah. And then, yeah, like, but then that was so, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah, because once you had the VHS tape of Bambi in your in your cabinet, you could pull it out and run it anytime you wanted to, as long as the tape didn't deteriorate. Yeah, and then yeah, when you uh, would re-release it, you're like, oh, I have to go get it. You know, so right. you would watch it again, and right. yeah, you'd get that new set of eyes on it, and you're watching it as a, from a different perspective. Sure, when um. Linwood Boomer, who was an, an actor when he was younger and a great writer, when he produced and created Malcolm in the Middle, he understood the industry extraordinarily well. And so many studios passed on Malcolm the first go-round. Ah, that's a stupid idea. It is, you know, no laugh track and this and that and blah, 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 and mom's going to run around. And, no. And Brian Cranston was like the last actor cast on the show. He was a throwaway member of the cast. Literally, dad was just going to be there to kind of like be the dad, but nobody realized it was Brian Cranston <laughs> and how good he was. Yeah. And so what, what Linwood recognized very early on is if the show was going to hit the jackpot and we were going to be able to produce 100 episodes, it was going to go into syndication. And syndication is where the writers and the members of the Directors Guild and the certain member of the, most of the cast, well, most of the principal cast, um, all make a large chunk of money because now the show is going to be in the rerun cycle. And we were making that project when reality television was just taking off and it was game shows and it was this and it was Big Brother and it was, you know, all these other shows that didn't have any value 
to be rerun because once you knew this, the, it's like watching a sports broadcast. If you know the end of the game, the score, so-and-so wins, you know, Yankees win or the Dodgers win, you don't want to watch it over again. So Malcolm was one of the very few shows being made at that time that had some staying potential. So what he did to guarantee that the show wouldn't be produced on DVD and then everybody would have their own little DVD of the whole seven seasons or however many they were going to do and they'd never have to watch it on reruns is because they already had it in their library. What he did to protect that, protect the cast, is he put phenomenal contemporary music over everything for the first two seasons. He paid through the nose for the best music that was playing contemporarily at the time where he knew that if they went into DVD production or Blu-ray production, whatever it was, the amount of money they would have to pay the musicians would be prohibitive. And so the studios went, okay, well, the show's not all that great. We're not going to spend a whole lot of money making a bunch of musicians wealthy because all their music is going to be played over and over again. And because of that, the show's still on the air 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And doing quite well. Thank you very much. So it's interesting, depending on where you watch it, some of the music's been changed. Interesting. And it's only been changed on the surface level. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm hard of hearing in one ear. So I always have captions on. Uh-huh. And I was watching, God, this had to be a couple weeks back. I was watching a couple episodes of Malcolm. And the music's playing, but it's not the music that the lyrics are popping up for in the closed caption. Oh, no, really? So the closed caption's still for the original contemporary music. But they've changed it. But, you know, the uh, it's just some, like, generic, uh, like, Elder. ambient sound. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was so yeah. Fun- it was so funny to watch. It's like, you guys going to go and change the captioning? Artificial intelligence. It's like, if you're going to go in and, you know, change it, and change it, you know, the next step down, too. Right. Because that was, well, it, it was no, confusing as hell. Well, that's more money. <clears throat> and so anybody else who is uh, hearing impaired is looking at that going, wait, the lips are making the wrong sound. No, wait, there's something wrong here. Yeah. So, well, that's how they can manipulate the industry so that the music that might have generated royalties for this particular band or this particular composer mm-hmm. or this particular group is no longer on the project, so you don't have to pay them anymore. That's why we're on strike. Yep. It's funny how this all comes full circle. That's what, well, and it can be done. I mean, you're going to see, in the very near future, you're going to see a feature-length film with the major cast from Dead People. I can see I can see another John Wayne movie being made if the heirs of John Wayne are paid significantly enough to allow his likeness to be artificially produced 
Well, I mean, they're trying that on Star Wars, aren't they? Didn't they do a few things where? As they had, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie Fisher was uh, brought in. Yeah. Uh, they, they CGI'd in Carrie Fisher. Uh, there was yep. going to be a project uh, a couple years back. James Dean was going to do a movie. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was like, now, I, I remember hearing the article on that. It's like, how in the hell is James Dean doing a movie? And it was going to be a yeah. CGI'd James Dean. Yeah. And yeah. now... On one level, that's super cool because the fact that technology has gotten to the point that you can do that is amazing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there has to be like a clear-cut language to make sure that it's not a one-time payoff and done so that every time you know that movie plays or that uh, James Dean CGI character is used, you know his estate gets paid because you know, that is still his well, likeness. Yeah, I mean, we can go into the business end of this uh, wacky world that we are in and and find all kinds of loopholes um, because once an actor is gone, um, it's really up to um, the heirs, whoever controls his likeness, uh, to determine what be done with that person and maybe that person would not have wanted to be a part of that film but the heirs are going to make x amount of dollars so they're going to say um i mean it comes right down to music um look at all the dozens of songs and recordings and documentaries that have been done on the beatles over the last 45 50 years since they broke up and that's all documented, recorded material that maybe George Harrison or uh, John Lennon wouldn't have wanted made public. Yeah, it, it's, it's all going to come down to ironclad uh, language. It has to. Sure. Yeah, well, and contractually, I mean, a lot, a lot of people go, oh, unions, they're always doing unions. Well... There's a plus side too, to collective bargaining and having the power to say, no, you can't digitally superimpose my body onto any movie you want without paying me. Um, we, we've gone down that path already earlier today. Um, but um, it, it is, like you said, it's intriguing that you have the technology available to um, bring Elvis back to bring all those people that died when they were 27. Yeah, is it bring back the 27 Club? Holy crap, would that be cool and creepy at the same time? Right. You know? It's just... Oh, we're going down... Okay, we're really off the rails actually, on this particular... Not really, because this is actually <laughs> a really good segue into Pet Cemetery 2. Speaking of cool and creepy... <laughs> <laughs> we can dive right well, into Pet Cemetery 2. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking about that, and I realized I'm so old, the vast majority of the films I've done have either been sequeled or remade more than once. Uh, even Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which is the, the show that I'm probably the most well-known for, was redone with motion capture. 
and I got a chance to meet the man, very talented actor, got up on stage and shook hands with him and posed for pictures um, a few years ago when they did their rebooted version of Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I think it was known, the most recent one was known as what? War for the Planet of the Apes. Very well done. Brilliant technology. Good story. I was engaged. I watched the movie as if we were, I was being very, very intrigued by the characters and it, it worked, but it was different. And I was in the audience in the theater where that particular show was being screened and um, the cast members and the director came up on stage after the screening. We were at 20th Century Fox. We were in the same theater that screened my movie 50 years earlier, same theater. And I, the, the, the room was full of actors. It was a Screen Actors Guild screening, specifically for the Screen Actors Guild. And so there was 500 seats. Every single one of them was full. And a few minutes into the Q&A, um, I was sitting maybe seven or eight seats away from where I sat with my kid sister when I watched myself play Cornelius on Battle for the Planet of the Apes. It was just eerie. And so I finally got a chance to raise my hand and said, um, you guys did a remarkable job. I said, but before we get ahead of ourselves, we have to remind ourselves that it took hundreds of people to turn one actor into Caesar. And the other cast members never saw Caesar. They saw a human with white dots all over his body. So it made it much more difficult for them to identify the character because he hadn't been produced yet. And I said, and when I got to play Cornelius, in three hours, I went from Bobby to Cornelius in a building that is literally a hundred yards from where we are sitting right now. And some of the greatest makeup artists, hairdressers, costumers who ever lived, worked and lived and made an, a, you know, a, a good career out of what they knew how to do, literally a hundred yards away from where we're sitting now. And the vast majority of those people are now looking for work or retired. And it, it, it and every, and I said we need to, you know, applaud those people who created something that was iconic enough to allow your craft to pursue the same storyline with a different technology. And I got a huge round of applause. Nobody knew that I was in the audience. And I just, I wasn't doing it to draw attention to myself. I was doing it to draw attention to people like Tom Berman and John Chambers and so many others. And maybe this is a good time to plug the great documentary that came out a few years ago called Making Apes. And it's on Amazon. If people haven't seen it, Go if, watch you're it. A film, <laughs> if you're a film buff, if you love film, you Owe it to yourself, especially if you like horror films. Hello, I know why we're here. If you want to know how horror film makeup 
began. Watch this documentary. It's it's just it's light years above every other kind of documentary that's out there because I counted the number of Academy Awards that were won by people who were knocking down Tommy Berman's door to participate in this documentary. There were something like 24 Academy Awards that were earned by contributors to this documentary. And God knows there was probably 70 Emmy Awards that were earned by the contributors to the doc. And um, it's something that people don't usually see because the makeup chair is a sanctuary. What is said, what is done, what is spoken, what is shared, it's like a confessional in a Catholic church. An actress comes from a wicked wild party. She's only been away from the party for two hours, and now she's sitting in the makeup chair, and they're trying to make her look film ready. And the things that are said, the things that are done, and the things that are shared there aren't said anywhere else. And I've seen assistant directors kicked out of a makeup trailer for that very reason. You gave us an hour, come back in 20 minutes. She'll be ready. And that isn't what this documentary is about. It's not a tell-all, TMZ kind of thing. It's about those makeup artists who worked their tails off to make the film that they were assigned to better. Well, and there's a story you tell in the documentary that I wanted to talk to you more about that I thought was really cool. And you you, you talk about uh, your dad's nose wiggle. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in, in the documentary, you're talking about how you, you know, you, you felt that as Cornelius, you should, you know, have some trait of your dad's and you you wanted to know how he did it. And, you know, the artist is like, well, if you can get him to tell you, I'll do it. And it's just now watching this story and just watching you tell the story was just fascinating because like. It, it it was almost like a little kid going up and peeling the magic back a little bit. And it was just really fun to watch. Oh, well, thank you so much. That was... Um, Roddy McDowell was a genuinely amazing, sweet, generous, caring human being. On top of that, he was a hell of an actor. But just as a human, he recognized that I was brand spanking new in the business. I was as green as the grass. And he understood that every chance he got, he was going to try to help me through whatever scene that we were in. And, you know, I'd had some acting experience through high school and college, but this is big time. This is this is the Olympic Games. I mean, any actor or stuntman or any crew member who's ever worked on a Hollywood film, we are Olympians in our craft. We are as gifted and as talented and as lucky as that human being who is next year going to be in Paris at the Olympic Games. And to be able to work with Roddy and Natalie Trundy 
and all the others, and to have makeup applied by Eddie Butterworth and and um, uh, overseen by Dan Streepak and all Tommy Berman, all those guys. I was I was literally watching the varsity team every day, and I just I just felt that. Yeah, I really should have some characteristics that would assign my character to um, having genetically come from Caesar. And, uh, yeah, it was a neat little trick. Roddy was so smart. He's new. And then we did the TV series right after we finished the feature. Within a few months, they had already uh, scheduled 13 episodes for the Planet of the Apes television series, and I played two different characters um, on the series. Ironically, I was the last ape to die on the five original features, and then literally months later, I'm playing a different character as alive as can be. <laughs> I did, but I didn't wiggle my nose on the series. I was not Cornelius. I was not the son of Caesar. So I made sure that on the series, the two characters I played didn't have that little trick. And, uh, so, yeah, it was fun times, fun, fun little memories. I say, and the, the, the documentary, like you said, is definitely worth, like, if you've ever had any interest in makeup or even how films are made, this documentary is a very, very good look behind the curtain. And it's also, it's a buddy picture. Yeah. If you notice, it's a buddy picture between two guys and Apprentice. And a very talented makeup artist who, by kismet, by pure chance, right place, right time, I see a theme here, um, the apprentice gets the, the, the well-known makeup artist the job of creating the ape for the first line of the apes. And the two of them become lifelong friends, and then they don't, and then they do again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really interesting buddy picture because all those people who contributed to the project were people that I worked with, you know, um, help me out. Who directed Pumpkinhead? Oh, that was, oh, good God. Dan, I was just looking at Dan it. Winston. Dan Winston, right? Uh, yes. No. Yeah, Dan Winston. Dan was an apprentice when I did Planet of the Apes. And then he got a chance to hire me on Pumpkinhead to do a couple little stunts, nothing, nothing big. But I got to work with Stan as a director. And I went, oh my God, I worked with him. When he was in the makeup lab at Fox at two o'clock in the morning, and now he's directing, so that was that was cool to see, you know. So, all right, where else do we want to go with all this rambling today? Well, you went, you you were an ape. Let's talk about when you were a zombie. Oh, uh, gosh, was it Night of the Comet? Uh, ooh, Night- we we get to Night of the Comet. Well, let's start. Yeah, let's start Night with Night of the, of the Comet. Comet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. See, now, you have to stop beating me up here because some of these projects that I worked on, I might have only been there for a few days. Oh, no, that's that's fine. That's... <laughs> and, you know, at 71, I'm having a hard time remembering what I had for breakfast yesterday. But uh, it's odd that as we get older, we can remember things from our past much more clearly than... Our recent past. As they didn't like the last 24 hours? Yeah. 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 So, um, 
all those projects were so much fun because once again, I was in a makeup chair and I was a mediocre actor. I, I will go on record as having said that uh, more than once. I was a mediocre actor in, in the big weeks, in the big weeks. I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to, you know, work on major productions as an actor, but I was never going to be the one who was going to carry a film. But I was really good for my limited experience and, and skill sets when I had makeup on. If I was in a robot costume, if I was a bear or a dog or a sheep or an alien or a zombie, I could just let loose and be as crazy and as creative and as odd as I needed to be to play that character. Um, when I was just myself, I was kind of um, reluctant to be that um, out there. So being inside the costume was always going to be a lot more fun. The prosthetic work that I did um, was always unique. Um, whoever was putting it on me at the time, God bless Jimmy Phillips. He was legendary. He's the one who made me as Cornelius, um, young, up-and-coming makeup artist who was going to be hugely successful and died in a plane crash six months after we did the film. Mm. Um, and we lost five major six major um, makeup artists and a couple of great stuntmen on that plane crash. Um, and um, I was supposed to be on the plane. I was actually scheduled to be a part of that project, and I ended up doing a Disney film instead. So I missed that project and missed that flight. And uh, my stunt double for Battle for the Planet of the Apes, I, it's the only time in my career I actually had a stunt double, was on that plane. He and his father both on that plane mm. um, along with Jimmy um, but uh, all the prosthetic work I did was just it, Night of Comet Living Dead Part 2 um, Fairy Tale Theater uh, they were all just so much fun because we never really knew what the final product was going to be until we got out of the chair we got out of the chair and looked in the mirror and went, yeah, that'll work. And off I went. So those were situations like that. Um, and part of the reason why they would hire me instead of a child is because it took so long. I mean, a child actor can only work nine hours yeah. in a given day. And, you know, three hours of that had to be school. And an hour of that had to be lunch. So you're left with four hours of actually being on the set working. Well, if it took three hours to get into makeup, You've got an hour, mm -hmm. three hours of makeup, three hours of school, one hour of lunch, uh, and one hour to shoot the scene. Well, that, they weren't going to do that. So well, they, they say, and that that was uh, one of my upcoming questions. Was like, how old were you in like '88? Okay, let's do the math. Um, I was born in '52, so I was 36, playing a teenager. Okay, because yeah, it's like. Uh, Living Dead too. You were a zombie kid, and it's like, yeah, I, it's like I know he wasn't a kid, but no. given your stature, no. you know, yeah, it, it yep. totally tracks. Yep, yep. No, I was actually playing a fourteen-year-old when I was the father of my first child. <laughs> that's, that, that's crazy. 
That's Hollywood for yeah, you, baby. I, <laughs> I was, I was, I was in my early thirties when I was playing Stink on um, Land of the Lost, and Stink was basically this little uh, fictional character who was um, maybe the mental capacity of a twelve-year-old. Mm-hmm. I mean, he and the other teenage boy were always wreaking havoc on the family and doing all kinds of fun, crazy stuff. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was a challenge because when you're an adult and you're all of a sudden a parent and you have to act like a parent and assume the responsibilities of a parent and then you're put into makeup and told, now go be 13 years old again. Wait, what? <laughs> Turn off all that parenting skill crap and, and go, go back be to being a kid. A kid. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was challenging from time to time. Well, and then, you know, in, in the 90s, like right at the start of the 90s, you played a monster of the week in one of my all-time favorite TV shows. In the very Ooh. first episode, you played Toad Boy in Swamp Thing. Oh, God, Toad Boy! That was so. It was the pilot. Yep. That was actually the. Yeah. I say you. You yeah. got to help kick off that series. Yeah. And I, I rewatched yeah. the series not that long ago, and yeah. to this day, I can you know. Like I had this thing when I was a kid, I'd, you know, uh, as the intro's going, you know, I'd, you know, I had that like really eerie intro and then, uh, Swamp Thing would open his eyes at the very end. Yeah. Here I am like 20 some years later, I still do the same damn thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I think if, if my memory serves me well, on memory, kick you in here. I believe that Swamp Thing was actually, the vast majority of the time, was played by a really good friend of mine, a stuntman by the name of Dick Durock. Was it Dick? Yeah, Dick and I had done so many other projects together uh, over the years, and we were both basically, at that point in time, known more for our stunt work than for our acting. And here we are, both doing big and little Swamp Things. And I went, oh, this, this is cooler than cool. You know, um, one of the great prosthetics that I did that um, most people know about now is a movie called The Blob. And there was a scene where one of the children is has fallen into the water and fallen into the grasp of the blob. And he's disappeared. And the teenage girl is down on a ladder reaching into basically this underground um, sewage system culvert area in this full of water. And she's trying to reach around to rescue, I think it was either her brother or someone she knew. So she was desperate to try to save this kid before the blob got him. And what the director and, and the other cast members thought would be good is if they had me go and do the transformation from the kid that fell into the water. And then when the kid comes back up, it's me with all this prosthetic on from underwater. Okay, that's cool. That, that works. But they didn't want the actress to see the transformation until they were rolling. So this woman is all worked up, this young actress, very talented young lady, um, gets down onto the rung of the ladder and she's going to reach in and she sees a hand. She, she's reaching for the kid and I pop up with this god-awful 
you know, melted face prosthetic on. I had been underwater for a length of time. We had scuba gear down there and we had a tank and we had all the, all the, the trimmings of me being able to get in there. The water gets calm and then they brought her in and the first time she's going to see me, they're rolling. And that was the take they used in the movie because it scared the living shit out of her. And, you know, for all the obvious reasons, <laughs> you know. So, anyway, that was kind of a fun little moment on the blog. So, You had a couple credits that I was curious as to what you uh, did on the movie. You know, because most of your credits are just like stunts. So, obviously, it was stunt work. But, um, Matilda. What, what, what were you doing on Matilda? If you don't um, remember, that's fine. I just... I know. think what it was, it was, it was... I was actually replacing my friend Larry Nicholas on that show because he was on the show on a fairly regular basis. And he got caught up on some other project and so I came in and replaced him. Um, I think it was just a crowd scene, kids running and falling and doing something where they just didn't want the kids um, in that environment where there's a chance that they could have fallen and gotten hurt. It was something fairly simple. Mm -hmm. The wasn't one of those projects where I was on it from start to finish. Um, but I think it was probably just one of those scenarios where um, for the vast majority of the time that I was in the business, there was a concerted effort to keep the actors, particularly child actors, as safe as they could, given the circumstances of the production. Um, they couldn't protect them from filming in 115 degree weather very often. I mean, it was everybody was out there. We all had to do what we had to do. Um, or in the bitter cold, you know, Jack Frost. We were in you know temperatures below zero for nearly six weeks and the kids had to be out there. Um, but for the most part, if there was an obvious perceived opportunity where they could get hurt, I would come in and cover them. And frequently there were situations where I would come in, not frequently, but enough times where the, the child would come to me and say, I can do that. Yeah, you can. I mean, you might even be able to do it better than me. I said, but, what if you can't? What if you get hurt? What if you break your leg? What if you scratch your face? The company has to shut down for weeks until you heal. That means all these people you see standing around you are out of work for weeks waiting for your face to heal. What do you think? You think I should do this? Because I get hurt, they just replace me. I'm, I'm replaceable. I'm dispensable. You're not. So what do you want to do? And sometimes the kids would go, oh, yeah, cool. And then they would kind of get excited about the fact, I have a stuntman. I have a stuntman. <laughs> and toward the, toward the end of my career, I even took it one step further because in the late 90s, I showed up in the Guinness Book of Records, the official Guinness Book of World Records. My son who's not an avid reader, happened to just be flipping through the book and saw the you know, entertainment industry part of the book and saw my name in there. Now, it wasn't 
Bobby Porter's stuntman for Terminator 2 or Planet of the Apes or something really glamorous or, or cool. It was Bobby Porter stunt double for Annie. <laughs> okay, I can live with that. Okay, we did some great stuff. But <laughs> You're yeah, in the book, it was, screw it. <laughs> it wasn't, a, yeah, I'm in the book. And then it says Bobby Porter is, is basically in this book because he is the oldest stunt person to double children. And the word oldest was in bold. And I went, okay. And I had never been interviewed for this segment of the book. Nobody ever called me from Guinness and said, hey, listen. It was somebody had called the Stuntman's Association, of which I was a member for 20 years, 22 years. Very prestigious organization, a subset of all the other stuntmen in the profession who were considered to be um, uniquely qualified. That's one way of saying it. Um, and respected among their peers. And somebody must have called the office at the association and said, give us something interesting that we can put in our book. So somebody, either one of the stunt guys that was sitting around at the office picked up the phone or our receptionist or somebody must have given them that story because I was never interviewed for the story. But here I am in the Guinness Book of Records. So every time I doubled a kid after that, I had a new gimmick. If the kid balked at my wanting to come in and do what it was that he was going to do and he wanted to do it himself, I would say, wait, hang on. You can help me at a world record. What? I said, well, I'm already in the Guinness Book of Records for being the oldest person to do stunts, and I'm older now. So if I do this stunt for you, that means that you help me break my own record. Oh, that's so cool. So he'd go tell his teacher, he'd tell his mom, he'd tell the director, I'm helping him break a world record. Yeah, yeah, you are. Get out of my way. Let me do my job. <laughs> <laughs> So, it, you know, you had to be stuntman and psychologist. Oh, yeah. At the same time. Well, I, I mean, anytime you're working with kids. You know, or anytime you're working. Yeah, yeah. You know, adult or actual kids. You, you have to be able yeah. to toe that line. <laughs> you do. And and even for young stunt people that would come and, and look for work when I was working, particularly on Malcolm or some other shows where I was a coordinator, uh, and they would try to sell me on the idea of hiring them, I, I said, you do realize that I can get Corey Eubanks or Debbie Evans, the two greatest drivers that ever lived, with a few exceptions. Debbie, for sure, the greatest stunt woman that ever lived, and other stunt women will argue with me, and I would say, well, okay, what about this? What about that? What about, okay, never mind. Um, for the same salary that I would have to pay you and you just got off a bus from Hutchinson, Kansas. Hello, Hutchinson. <laughs> There's a theme. There's a theme here. And I said, and I have to, you know, trust you that you will be A, on time, B, qualified, and C, hit your mark exactly where it's supposed to be every single time because what you say you know how to do, you're going to have to do maybe 15 times. And do it better each time. Now, how am I supposed to hire you over Debbie Evans 
when I get you for the same salary and for the last 30 years, she's been doing exactly what I suggested every time I've hired her. It's very difficult to break into our profession. One of the most difficult jobs to get in Hollywood today is a stuntman or a woman because there's such a risk involved. If you're an actor and you're not very good, it's usually picked up in the audition or in the first couple of days of shooting and they've actually recast actors after a week of production because they realized, oh, wait, we made a mistake. Let's go with our second choice. Um, with a stunt guy, you make a mistake, somebody gets hurt or dies. That's why we're stunt people. We take those risks that actors don't need to take. Don't get me started on Tom Cruise. <laughs> right. You know, God bless him. I worked with Tom Cruise on a show called Taps many, many, many years ago where he was basically a teenager. He had just done Risky Business and he was huge. But he also had a couple other cast members, um, Sean Penn um, and a few others, who, and George C. Scott, God bless him, um, in that film. And so I got a chance to see these guys on their way up, you know. Um, Tom's a very talented actor, no doubt about it. Uh, the stunts that he does, the, the the limit that they will go to allow him to do some of the things that they allow him to do is pretty unprecedented, given that if something goes wrong, they don't make the movie. Yeah, it, it's some of the stunts that he as an actor get to do are pretty insane. But the, what people don't know is it took months months of rehearsals with a stunt double for him in the rehearsals, in the in the pre-production um, prototype building, the rigging building, uh, the, the convincing not only the producers, but the insurance company that is insuring Tom and the production against any unnecessary risks. They have to be completely convinced that what he's doing is doable as would any other actor you don't want to put the star of your franchise not your film but your franchise in harm's way without absolute assurance that you've done everything everything possible to eliminate anything going wrong oh yeah it's like there's a stunt in uh the newest Mission Impossible that yeah. now I can't remember if he got to do it or he was bummed he didn't get to do it, but it was you're riding a dirt bike off a cliff mm -hmm. and you know, they, they scouted the location and like, I, I saw all this on the Graham Norton show, you know, he's telling the story right. and right. I'm, I'm watching the setup for the stunt and it's like, you're insane. Because this goes wrong, it's not just no more movie, it's no more Tom. Right. And his takeaway wasn't, oh, somebody could die from it. It was, all I could picture is some goat farmer down in the valley, just sitting there out tending the field, and this motorbike just drops into his field. And, you know, he yeah. just starts laughing his ass off. It's like, that that's yeah. your takeaway? Yeah. You're nuts. Yeah. Like he really does feel the need for speed, man. Well, he's built 
his reputation on being the modern day um, Clint Eastwood or John Wayne character where, and we've talked about this before, where at the first 10 or 12 years of my career, we were anonymous. We weren't given billing. We were protected from being seen from the cast. Um, we were we were the magicians behind the mirror, and it only was like the early '80s when people started realizing, "Hey, stunt guys are really kind of popular. We need to like manipulate some sort of way to, uh, you know, create um, more box office from the stunts." Well, yeah, hello, um, but we didn't show a lot of people how we did what we did because if you go to a magic show and then the guy says, Hey, stick around after the audience, please. I'm going to show you how I did this stuff. Well, that's cool. Once. Are you going to go back and see his act again? No, because you're going to know how he did it. And so there has to be some mystique. There has to be some mystery. And we have such a fascination with how they do that. Now that when you have a DVD that comes out, um, five years after the movie came out and it says uh, director's cut or special edition. The special edition is basically just retakes or out or, or extended takes or the behind the scenes um, documentary on, on how we did that um, so that people will buy it again. It's a marketing tool. And I have lost a lot of friends. I have lost a lot of friends in my profession um, because they had to push the envelope because it became a competition, particularly in the 80s when all the stunt people and all the coordinators were being asked, well, how do we top, you know, top gun? How do we top Mission Impossible? How do we top uh, James Bond? How do, we, how do we make people watch a chase scene like Terminator 2 without having to spend as much money? But you don't. You know, um, so there was this this competitive urge that fed the egos of some of these stunt coordinators and stunt people where they said, well, we can do that bigger. We can make that fire hotter. We can jump higher. Um, And people died because of it, because they let their egos get in over their head. I mean, they literally got out over their skis and, you know, um, things didn't go well. Oh yeah, um, and it happens still to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't hear about it, but it's it's still happening. Uh, well, unfortunately, not as often as we would hope. But well, you push the envelope I'm, too I'm, many times, the envelope's going to rip. I mean, it's it's just the nature of the beast. Well, in in in, in any profession, but yeah. in our profession, I mean, my son's a firefighter. He's a damn good firefighter. He's an engineer, and hopefully. Soon he'll be captain, um, paramedic. He's, you know, at work right now, probably saving lives somewhere. Um, and he knows. He's an Eagle Scout. He knows there's protocols to follow. And if you go into a fire or you go into a confined space, if you go into a roaring river or you go into a school bus, there are protocols you have to follow despite your urge to just go in and be the hero, you have to do what is appropriate and safe because 
if you die, the person you're trying to save isn't going to be any better off because they're going to die too. You've got to be out there doing what you do and doing it well and, and staying within your area of expertise. And there were stunt guys. I turned down work. I turned down pretty much every horse job that ever came along. Once in a while, if I had to ride a horse and just go from A to B, I could do that. Or if I had to go and fall off, I could do that. But because I looked like a jockey, I got a lot of job offers to go be a jockey. And I went, well, I can play a jockey in the jockey's room, getting dressed as an actor, looking like a jockey. But if you want to sit me on a horse, you better go hire a jockey. I knew, I knew how to say no. And that's why we're still talking today. I say, that, that's the key. No when to say no. Yeah. And, and our profession is very intoxicating. It's, it's, it's like a drug. You get so wrapped up in, oh, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. And, and, and there were actors and stuntmen who would say, well, say yes to the job. Get the job first and then go learn how to do it. What? No, that's backwards. What? Uh, yeah, and that's always going to bite you in the backside. So, that's like set the controls of a plane and then hope you know how to land it. Oh, I can take off. Oh, the landing part? Yeah, I hadn't quite gotten yeah, that. That's going to be a little bumpy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Uh, I know. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. What have we forgotten to talk about? What do we need to wrap up? Oh, there, there's a lot to talk about. But let's wrap this up with something that sure. could be timely given all the AI stuff. And is probably one of the most popular movies to date. And let's talk about your uh, experience on Terminator 2. Oh, um, when people ask me, and it's a fairly common question, what the most dangerous stunt you ever did was, it's difficult to assume that there's a straightforward answer. Um, because some of the more dangerous things I did, the, the, the things that I did that where I got closer to um, being injured or actually being injured were in comedies. It was, it was, it was pratfalls and comic scenarios that were just so slapstick that people didn't realize you're laughing so hard. You don't realize how dangerous what we were doing really was. Um, but I will tell you that the stunt sequences that we did in Terminator 2 um, have received some of the highest praise from some of the most talented filmmakers that exist. Um, and the chase scene that we did on Terminator 2 ranks right up there with some of the greatest chases of any kind um, in the history of film. And I don't say that lightly. I'm saying that because other people have already said it. Um, I will give you the full story about how we did um, the big chase with the, the, the boy on the minibike and the truck chasing us. Um, it was in outside of Los Angeles in a flood control channel um, that was as slick as ice. Um, it's very slippery concrete with dust on top and debris and 
mold and mildew and all, and it's just like riding on ice. So it's tricky just to ride on that surface, let alone having a runaway freightliner coming off a bridge that doesn't have anybody in it. And you have to take off and leave just as that tractor hits the the, the wash. Um, I I will be honest with you, because I know my son will be listening to this. Um, that's the film that caused me more nightmares while we were doing it than any other job I did. Um, because I knew how to write. I was a good writer. I was not a great writer. Um, we had another stunt double who did the second unit work who was a phenomenally gifted writer. Um, he was bigger. His name was Doc Charbonneau. Um, he didn't look as much like the boy as I did. Uh, he was a little stockier, looked more adult-like. Um, I looked more like the kid than he did. So I did some of the first unit, most of the first unit shots um, where appearance was more important. Um, and then Doc did a lot of the, the crazier driving. Um, well, between the two of us and dozens and dozens of other stunt persons and camera operators, um, we put together a pretty impressive sequence. Here's the tie-in. Here's the way we tie up the whole morning's conversation here. The guy who was pulling focus on the camera, on the truck that I was chasing, the camera truck that had maybe a dozen people on it with like two or three cameras. The guy who was principally responsible for keeping me in focus was a young man by the name of Todd Gavin. Todd became a cinematographer and an upcoming, you know, going through the, the ladder um, in the camera department. Todd and I met for the very first time when he was my neighbor's one-year-old child that I babysat before I was in the industry. Take that one through for a minute. I am now filming one of the greatest chase scenes ever photographed, and I'm being kept in focus by the guy whose diapers I changed maybe 30 years before. Now, is this the neighbor that got you onto the film in Hutch? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, full circle. Yes. 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 That's crazy. Todd's, Todd's dad, Jim Gavin, was the helicopter pilot of all time. Um, I did a movie called On Golden Pond, and I know nobody's going to watch it because it's not our genre. On Golden Pond is a phenomenal movie. Um, Ted Academy Award nominations. Henry Fonda, Catherine Hepburn, Jane Fonda, Dabney Coleman. It is a brilliantly done movie. There was one scene that didn't end up in the movie where the boy is out driving around in his grandfather's old Chris Craft runabout. Just finally got the keys to the boat and Grandpa lets him drive it. And I pull up alongside of him in a Boston whaler. And we're having a race. Jim Gavin was flying the camera helicopter for the sequence and I could reach out 
from my Boston Whaler, I could reach out and tap the skid of his helicopter anytime I wanted. He was that close the entire time. It was just like, uh, he's right there. And I went, okay, yeah, he's good. <laughs> he's really good. Um, and yeah, and so his child, Todd, ends up in the camera department, and here I am chasing him in a camera truck. So uh, T2 was an incredible experience. Um, James Cameron is a brilliant filmmaker. He's uh, difficult to work with. Everybody who knows him will say that. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a perfectionist and hands-on. Uh, he gets what he wants. But, um, and the, the, I mean, it, it's worth it in the end, though. I mean, it, it's definitely that's why he is one of the top directors of our time. So, well, so is, so is Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood is a sweetheart to work with. Clint Eastwood would finish his day's work at four o'clock in the afternoon and look at his assistant and go, Okay, we've done enough. Oh, wow. And we would leave. I can't say enough great things about Clint Eastwood, the filmmaker let alone Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry. Clint Eastwood, I did two films with him, and um, we actually had the privilege of making dinner for him and his family and about 50 of the crew who got wind of the fact that my wife was making Chinese food that night. Um, <laughs> they just all showed up outside the door of this condo in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Yes, I said Jackson Hole, not Jackson. Sorry, this is pre-billionaire. <laughs> I'm going to upset somebody. Okay. Yeah. This is before the, the little airport in Jacksonville was full of Gulfstream jets. I know. But yeah, we, we shot in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I played um, Clyde. Yeah. Here we go. I, I'm a human again. I'm an orangutan. Um, but Clint Eastwood, when we talk about, you know, you mentioned the end justifies the means. Well, I've worked on great sets where it was a pleasure to be there, where it was fun to be a part of the project, and then I've worked on some sets where we are nervous, we are anxious, we are frustrated, we are fearful, and both films were unbelievably great. Hmm. Some of the most pleasant experiences I've ever had on a film set were made by people that you don't think of as being necessarily great filmmakers. Michael Landon, Little House on the Prairie. What a class act he was. Okay. Um, the Bridges family, from Lloyd on down, every one of them, class acts. Absolute class individuals. And I, I, I do, I don't, have we talked about Robin at all? I don't think so, no. Can I wrap this up with a little Robin Williams story? Absolutely. All right. Bear with me, you guys. This is worth listening to. I had the privilege of working with Robin Williams four different times. The first time I worked with him was for a comedy special that was hosted by Bobcat Goldthwait. Google him. He was brilliant. Um, in the beginning of the day, I had to jump through a candy glass window jump up on the bed, and then beat the crap out of Bobcat. He was having a dream, <laughs> and he wakes up in the middle of the dream, and here I am, this kid, just wailing on him, okay? And it was funny as all get out. It was a comedy special for a brand new company that nobody had ever heard of called HB 
Oh. First year. First year. And it was a Sunday. Nobody worked on a Sunday, but I was there. And I got done with that sequence by 10 o'clock in the morning. And so the assistant came over to me and he said, you did a great job. We're really happy for, you know, everything you gave us. And thank you so much. And you can go home now. But if you want to stick around, later on tonight, we have um, a scene that would used to be done on a TV series called Laugh-In. Great comedy series. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. I watched it every weekend. There was a scene where there was a big dance. All the cast members were on the dance floor, and then the music would stop, and somebody would throw out a one-line joke. I'd say that, that like, quick hand to the camera, and yeah. And and it was it was the 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 culmination of the 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 night's performance. I mean that was how they wrapped up the show every every week, and it was hysterical. And and you know huge names: Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, Richard Nixon. I mean all these amazing people would show up to be on Wacken. And they said, "This guy says to me, you can go home. You're done. Thank you very much, or you can stick around." And help us fill up the dance floor because we need people on the dance floor because we're going to do an homage to Latvian. I said, I'm a stunt guy. I'm not a trained dancer. And he, and he says, I just need a body on the floor. You can fake some moves, right? And he says, you went to the prom. I went, well, no, not really. But yeah, I, I get it. Okay. Um, I said, well, who am I supposed to dance with? And the guy looks around the room. And he sees these two women standing over in the corner of the room and they're doing something from another scene. And he goes, how about those two? These are, how do I explain this politely? They are Victoria's Secret models. Okay, these are runway Whoa. models that are just, I went, yeah, I can make that work. <laughs> I'm so sure I, I can think of something. I'll, I'll come up with something to do, you know. And so we wait around. We do this, the scene that evening, and the rest of the cast members start showing up. And we get into the scene, and Bobcat does his line, and everybody laughs. And then Whoopi Goldberg does her line, and everybody laughs. This is 38 years ago. Think Whoopi Goldberg in the beginning and the prime of her career. Bobcat in the prime of his career. Billy Crystal comes on, does his line, and everybody's hysterical. And then Robin Williams hits the floor. Oh, no. Oh, man. And it's supposed to be a, a one-sentence joke, right? <laughs> he goes off for easily 10, 15 minutes. And Whoopi and Bobcat and Billy Crystal, who were already established, successful performers, walked off the scene. They stood next to the camera, so they weren't on camera. And I saw all three of them bow to Robin while he's in the middle of this unbelievable monologue where everybody is out of care. We are all on our butts laughing. The cameraman, the makeup artist, the grip, the electricians, the top guy that came in from the they're all absolutely losing it and robin just never misses a beat okay that's the very first time i saw robin williams in person flash forward to jumanji i worked with him again a couple other times um jumanji 
we're in New Hampshire. The little town that we're shooting in has a little roundabout, little downtown circular road, and we have all set up the crew in the grassy area in this roundabout. And everybody from around the area have come out to watch Robin Williams work. The, 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 uh, the crowd is like five deep. It's like watching a parade. And Robin would never leave the set unless he absolutely had to. He would just sit there and just shoot the breeze with the crew or start an improv right there on the spot. He had to go and leave to change wardrobe to come back from a, for a different scene. So he and a production assistant kind of quietly snuck away. He went to the trailer, changed clothes, and as he was walking back into the set, now he's behind this massive humanity, and he sees a little girl, maybe 10 years old, in a wheelchair with her mom, and she's behind this row of five adults who are all standing in front of her, and she's trying to see the crew. She's trying to see her favorite actor, Robin Williams. This is a doubt right? Robin comes up behind her quietly, and he bends over, and he hunkers down behind her, and he says to her, you know from where you're sitting, all I can see is butt. <laughs> and she thinks it's just somebody else saying that. She goes, yeah, I know. And she turns to make eye contact with the guy who's said the line. And it's, oh, my God, it's freaking Robin Williams. Now, he says, shh, 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 shh. he goes, hey, I know people. I think I can get you a better seat. And he says to the mom very politely, he says, listen, I have to stay here until they tell me I can go home. You guys can leave whenever you want. But if you want, come with me, and I'll make sure that your daughter can see what she wants to see. And he brought it to him. <laughs> I am cheering up right now. He says to the two of them, come with me. And he takes her and her mom. And he sets them down in the middle of the set with the crew next to his chair. And she says to her, so, what's up? Talks to her like she's a member of the crew. Never, never condescends to her, never asks her about her wheelchair, nothing. Just has a casual conversation with her every chance he gets. Now, I have been the stunt double for the boy in the film for a few weeks. The plan is for me to be the boy who gets chastised by the board game. If you guys remember the story of Jumanji, the board game punishes him for lying. He's supposed to turn into this ape creature that we have been building for four months through the special effects makeup crew, ADI. Um, oh, God. I, can't, I think it was ADI. It was a great effects crew. And we were doing something nobody else had ever seen. Imagine Planet of the Apes makeup with servos and electronic mechanisms and motors inside of the appliance on my face that are being manipulated by a puppeteer in addition to my own eyes and my own body but it's a, it's a mechanical 
appliance. It's Planet of the Apes with servos and mechanics built in. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. We go to, we leave New Hampshire. We go to Vancouver. The end of the film, we have finally built this contraption. I go to the makeup trailer at 2 o'clock in the morning. I get glued into this thing. The puppeteer and I get our rehearsals. We get it dialed in. The director's going to walk in. They have been past, they have been seeing the progress that we've been making all along and they're going, oh, yeah, great. Oh, we can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. The director and the producers and the entourage walk into the makeup trailer for the first time to see the final product because we're going to walk out of that makeup trailer and shoot that scene where Robin Williams and the kid have to walk along the sidewalk and Robin has to chastise the boy for lying. That's the scene we're going to shoot that day. The director walks into the makeup theater, sees me standing there. I say hello, and the puppeteer mimics it. He bursts out into laughter. I went, oh, shit. That's not the response we wanted. And they, they, it was too much. They, they had gone too far, but they couldn't visualize it in three dimensions until they actually saw me standing in the makeup that we had worked on for, at this point, four months. Okay. I'm coming around full circle. Okay. I'm coming around full circle. While we were in Vancouver, I got a message from a friend of mine that I had made in New Hampshire about the little girl in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Two weeks after I left there, there was a large box on her doorstep that had been sent to her, unbeknownst to anyone. Nobody had ever discussed it. That box was full of Mrs. Doubtfire memorabilia. Whoa. Signed scripts, pictures, every T-shirts, hats, anything that said Mrs. Doubtfire on it was in that box for her because that was her favorite movie. That was not expected. That was not... But that's who he was. That's the kind of human that he was. Now, take that to the day where I realized this six-week job that I have where I'm going to complete the film for the child. It'll be his voice, but it's my body and my performance on, on camera. It's done. Went too far. We're going back. The kid's going to do some minimal <laughs> makeup. It'll be Planet of the Apes type stuff, very simple. And thank you, Bobby. We appreciate all the hard work you put into this, but this isn't going to work. Robin got wind of the fact that they had just canned the whole idea before I even set foot outside the makeup trailer. Robin says to the producer, we're already here. We're already set. I'm already in the wardrobe. Let's shoot the scene. Give Bobby and the puppeteers a chance on camera. We can take a look at the film tomorrow and then decide. Because he knew, he knew that I was going to lose six weeks' work on what might be, we didn't know at the time, but what might be a pretty good film. Yeah. He and I walked down that sidewalk at least 15 times trying to make that seen the best it could be. And after they saw the dailies, they went, great scene, but it's just, this is not going to work. It's just too, too out there. But Robin worked his ass off for three hours that he didn't need to do. That's Robin Williams. 
one of the classiest, smartest, spontaneously funny people I have ever known in my life. So I'm sorry it took so long to get it around full circle, but I had to pay tribute to Robin. Please watch Tommy Berman's documentary called Making Apes. Will Conlon was the young director who did that film, and they did a great job. There are my commercials. Thank you very much, you guys, for listening for so long. I apologize profusely. Oh, it was it was absolutely worth it. And I, God, I couldn't have asked for a better wrap-up. Um, thank you for sharing that and spending two months with me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, for anybody who... Might be in the uh, Nebraska area. All you people from Hutchinson who know how to drive in that general direction. Uh, in April, come play with us. Yeah. Um, Moose will tell you more about what we've got planned for next April. It's going to be a lot of fun. I say definitely stay tuned. Uh, we'll be making major announcements soon, but Bobby will be hanging out in Nebraska in April. And Hey. It's going to be you guys, a long time. A, Moose, it's been an honor to be here. I'm sorry it took so long to get the stories out, but uh, for a guy who's four foot nine, I can sure extend the story. Oh, and, there, and like I said earlier, there's tons more stories that we could dive into. It's just, oh, we'd be here for months. <laughs> we'll save them. We'll save them for April. How's Absolutely. That? And listeners, you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com. Or just me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Moose Media Inc. Just look for the moose. And like I said, Bobby, this has been an absolute blast. Very informative. Very heartfelt. And I couldn't have asked for a better two-part episode. So thank you very much for coming on. It's truly been my pleasure. I, I really do mean that. It's, um, it's always a lot of fun to feel like we still have some something to share. So thank you again for having me. Absolutely. And until next time, Horror Hounds, mash on. This has been Moose's Monster Bash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>